Well, Father, we do want to be a grateful people today, and you have been so good to us in so many ways. And so we do want to just, with heads bowed and hearts tender, say thank you for your goodness to us as Americans. But most of all, thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have forgiveness of sin and entrance to heaven. Thank you for the newness of life in which we can walk in Christ and that you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, that we can know your will and we can walk in the truth in victory. And Father, now as we open our Bibles, we just thank you for the ways that you speak to us in times like this and the ways that you give direction, encouragement, rebuild us and retool us for another week as we face adversity from all fronts in this wicked world and the challenges are great but today lord we just uh, humble our hearts now and receive the word with gratefulness in jesus name i pray amen well do you remember those two verses from proverbs 3 5 and 6 maybe you memorized them in vacation bible school let's say them together can we do that They're up on the screen for you. Can you say them with me? Let's say the reference and the verses together. Together, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Aren't those good verses? We put them up in King James, because that's how I memorized them many years ago. The NIV is similar, except the last phrase, instead of shall direct thy paths, it's translated shall make thy paths straight. And the idea is there is that God gives direction. Instead of a crooked path or a divided trail where you don't know where to go, he makes a straight path for you. Let's read it one more time and take in what he's saying to us together. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Thank you, Chris. And, um, you know, I, I can almost never read those verses without thinking about something that took place in my life one afternoon when I was working on my private pilot's license down in Beckley at the Raleigh County Airport. I had an opportunity to take some flying lessons. I never did uh, fulfill the requirements for a license, but had great joy in having some afternoons of, of, of flight training. And one afternoon, my flight instructor, after we had taken off, and when you're in training, you fly the left-hand pilot seat and your instructor's in the right-hand seat um, guiding you and talking you through. And we got up to altitude and were doing some drills. And then she reached in the back seat and pulled... Uh, out a hood. Now, some of you men especially can picture this. It, picture a welding helmet when, you put, when guys weld and then they flip up their helmet. You know, they put their helmet on and then they're not welding, they flip it up. That's kind of what it's like. It's a, it's a shroud. It's made out of plastic, fits on your head, and it comes down in front of your face enough so that if you were to look out the windows of your airplane, you would have to like t- tilt your head way back. So we're flying along and she says, here, put this on. We've just entered fog. 
Well, see, what the hood does is it blocks all view of the horizon because especially beginner pilots, you don't look at the instruments on your dashboard. You're looking at the horizon. You maintain uh, your uh, level wing uh, balance and, and your attitude to the earth and your altitude based on your altimeter and you've got a false horizon gauge and all of a sudden with the hood, guess what you have to do? You have to trust your instruments. And I want to tell you, I'll never forget the tightening of the gut that takes place when you have that hood on and you, you're just, everything within you is screaming that you must look out the window. Part of it is that all your life you've driven a car looking out the window and you think, we're going to crash. Well, you know what? Um, they say that um, you have about 17 seconds in complete blackout without instruments to be able to hold a bearing and a balance based on just your gut instinct. Pilots would call it maybe flying by the seat of your pants, flying by feel. As we left the service this morning, one man told me that he read an article that said uh, the title of the article was 87 Seconds to Die. And I guess if you're up flying, that the most that you can keep that airplane in the air, if you had complete blackout, based upon flying it according to your feelings, within 87 seconds you will crash into the ground. You will turn it into a roll or spin and you'll nosedive right to the ground. Based upon what? Based upon everything that's in you telling you, this is the way I should go. This is what feels right to me. Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15 this morning where we continue with the great story of this great patriarch, Abram, and um, what's happening in his life. And we have in Abram's life here a great challenge in, in some ways, there is, there is a conflict that is going on within Abram at the beginning of chapter 15. We will use for our text this morning, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. If you're new to us, we're just making our way through this great book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, written by Moses uh, many years after this happened, recorded as a historical record uh, for the children of Israel, probably written while they were in the wilderness on their journeys, recorded under the authorship and guidance of the Holy Spirit through Moses, uh, um, the one who wrote it down. Abram has a lot going on in his life. If you've been here, you know that. We're now in chapter 15, but he's in conflict this morning. He's pulled between trying to believe God and trying to not follow his own emotions. In a sense, you could say he's been flying along and all of a sudden, he's entered into some fog. Do you know what it feels like to be in what I would call as the title of our message this morning, the fog of God's will? You have some direction, you have some word, you have a sense of what God wants, but all of a sudden, maybe even for long seasons, sometimes years, we can be in the fog. I don't know where to go. I know I'm supposed to trust my instruments. I know that God has given me direction, but everything within me is telling me this isn't going to work. This isn't the right direction. That's the way Abram feels, as though he's been put under the hood and he, he can't see his instruments and he's, he's fighting whether to follow the gut instinct or follow the instrument, the promises of God's word, the direction of God's will. Let's read our text, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll break down the passage and see what's happening here and then draw some life application before we leave. Genesis chapter 15, 
Beginning with verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. We'll stop right there this morning. In fact, we may not even exhaust everything that's here for us in this uh, very uh, packed passage of Scripture this morning. But let's break it down. Uh, It breaks down verse by verse to give us kind of an understanding of what's happening in Abram's life. And let's look at the words. Look at right away what it says. After this, the passage starts. After what? After what's been happening in chapter 14. And we'll remember that the last couple weeks, we've learned that Abram, with his 318 swordsmen, in commando-like style, in the stealth of night, in in a Gideon-type raid of 300 men against a massive army from the north, has gone and he has released and freed his nephew Lot, who you'll recall had pitched his tent down in Sodom. And when the kings, these mighty kings from the north, wicked kings, had come and swept through, they had captured Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, all of his property, all of his people, all of his possessions, and taken them away. And when Uncle Abram heard about it, he mounted up with his armed guards, and off they went. He returns to great victory, and you'll remember the great humility and integrity from last week of Abram, as he meets there on the plain upon return, uh, two kings, one the king of Sodom, one that mysterious Melchizedek, Who, by the way, Janet referenced to me when we got home that I kept saying that Abram worshipped Melchizedek. Abram bowed down to Melchizedek. And it doesn't say that in the text. I I don't remember saying that. I was surprised that I said that. But I say a lot of things. And either I'm very filled with the Spirit or I just talk too much. But um, from the text, it does not say that Abram necessarily worshipped Melchizedek. He acknowledged him as one greater than himself by paying tithe to him. And we learned last week that Melchizedek was a type of priest-king, a type of Christ in the Old Testament. But I overstated it to say that that Abram actually worshipped Melchizedek or bowed down to Melchizedek. That's not in the text. So forgive me for being misleading in any way from the text. But that's what was happening. Abram had returned, and he had set Lot free, and these two kings meet him there, and you remember with humility and integrity, he turned down the king of Sodom's offer to have all of the loot and the booty from the, from the war, from the captivity, Really, the king of Sodom had no basis upon which to make that deal. Abram's the one who had done all the work. He's the one who, as the conquering king, possessed it all now. And the king of Sodom, in a sense, tempted him. But Abram, remember what he did? He insisted that the king of Sodom have all of his people and all of his possessions back. He refused to allow the opportunity for any ungodly person to ever be able to say... Abram is only blessed and only wealthy because of what I gave him. 
And he only wanted it to come from the blessing of the hand of God upon him. And so after this, chapter 15, verse 1, after he released Lot, after he had that great victory, we have now, number one, an unusual conversation that takes place. Verse 1, an unusual conversation. Notice this. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, we don't know a lot about how that happened. He did not have a printed Bible. It says it was a vision. Was he awake? Was he asleep? Was he meditating deep in the night in his, in his bed, in his tent? But we just know that God spoke to him in this vision. Was it an audible voice? We don't know a lot about it. Um, in the Old Testament, that especially was common, wasn't it, for the prophets and the patriarchs to hear the voice of God and to have this direct revelation from God. What a great thing, though, for him to be able to hear a word from the Lord right there in his ears. And this then begins this interesting conversation in this vision where Abram is receiving a word from the Lord. Notice the first thing that the Lord says to him. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. What do we know right away from the way God spoke to Abram? Abram is afraid. Now stop and think about that. What's going on here? Why would the conquering commando king be able to go out and whoop up on those armies and then coming back home, back to normal? This is one of the great high points of his life. He's had this great spiritual integrity to deny worldly wealth at this time. And it says he's afraid. We might get a little clue from what from what God says to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield. I'm the one who will protect you. He's reminding Abram, I think, that no matter what happens, God will take care of him. Here's what I suspect is happening. And I don't know this from the text, but it only makes sense to me that what's happened is Abram has returned from this great conquest. He's ridden several hundred miles round trip He's fought in the middle of the night. He's missing sleep. We don't know how much time has gone by from chapter 14 to chapter 15. We just know that after all this happened, the dust settles. Abram's sitting around the fire in front of his tent, and somehow he becomes overwhelmed with concern, anxiety, and care. I think there's a lot of things that could be happening here, one of which is maybe we might call it an Elijah syndrome. Remember Elijah, and you can look up his story later, after his great victory against Jezebel and the false prophets and great physical and spiritual emotional strength. The next story in 1 Kings, what we find is Elijah's out in the desert dying of a depression, refusing even to take in food. And God has to feed him with, with ravens. Finally, God says, okay, Elijah, sleep a little bit, eat a little bit, and then let's get back with it here. We also found Elijah having some self-pity. Only I am the one left here when there were, what, 800 or something that had not bowed the knee of prophets there, or thousands even. And so you have, you have this letdown that, like Elijah had, great spiritual victories, great emotional, um, almost euphoric spiritual conquest you'll notice even in the great men of God is sometimes followed by a letdown season, a time where you just feel all empty and weak. And I suspect that Abram is coming off of this great victory and all of a sudden he's just 
he's just depleted. He's just, his tank is empty. He's given out everything he has to give, and now he's empty, and so he's vulnerable to his own weaknesses at that point. And I think the other thing that hit him was, I have just offended, scattered, routed, and killed a whole bunch of men of the most powerful army on the face of the earth today. You know what he's just realizing? Yes, I got, uh, I got Lot taken care of. I brought everybody back and, and we've had this great victory. But by the time they reassemble up there, the most powerful army in the world is who I've just made an enemy with. These four uh, kings who are in cahoots together. So he's starting to think on the human level. He's, he's depleted physically. He's depleted emotionally, no doubt. He's starting to have a sense of, of the fact that he's vulnerable to this northern army that just may be an enemy for the next several decades. He's going to have to watch his back. And God speaks to him and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. He also says to him at that point, I am your reward. I will be your reward or I will be... Your reward will be very great. As the the NIV says, I am your reward or your... Excuse me. I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, I am your great reward. Or if you'll notice a footnote in your Bible and others, there's a debate on what the Hebrew translates into there. Or your reward will be great. The idea there is, I wonder if he's not thinking about the fact that he just missed the greatest opportunity to be unbelievably filthy wealthy for the rest of his life by turning down all the loot from the king of Sodom. I kind of doubt that, but maybe he was thinking about that. And the Lord says... You're good, everything's fine, I'll be your shield, and I will be your very great reward. Notice that this unusual conversation continues with a natural confusion. Number two, a natural confusion on the part of Abram. Abram now speaks, and he lets us in on what he's thinking about as well. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, I don't know the setting in which this took place exactly, but Abram is evidently lying in his tent on his sleeping mat in the middle of the night, in the middle of darkness, and he's meditating. He's thinking about all these things churning in his mind, and in a vision, God speaks to him and immediately seeks to calm him down and and remind him that I am the sovereign Lord. Abram references him as sovereign Lord, ruler, controller of everything. I will be your shield. I will be your reward. And then when Abram says, in essence, that's all fine and good, but what's it all going to amount to if you've made promises to me that are going to be unfulfilled because I don't have a child? And so Abram is naturally confused about what's been going on in his life. Look, Lord, you gave me great victory over these armies. You've allowed me to amass great wealth from your hand. You've allowed me to save the life of my nephew Lot and his whole tribe. And here I am in my tent, but the one thing I really want is this, what? That you would fulfill your promise and give me a son. But I'm going to have to, I guess, do it through my servant. Have you ever been there? In walking with the Lord, you look around your life and there are many ways that God has blessed you. This is good and this is good and this is good and it's all good except 
There's this one desire of the heart that remains unfulfilled. And in spite of the blessings and in spite of the promises of God, you keep coming back to this spot and you keep saying, okay, Lord, it's all fine and good, but what good is it if this is no good? I've got this hole in my life. I've got this unfulfilled desire of my heart that I fully believed was from you. It was your plan, but it's unfulfilled. And so Abram has sort of a natural confusion. Notice that Abram, number three, comes up with a cultural solution. He comes up with a cultural solution. The end of verse two. Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And the Lord says, and and, and Abram said, verse three, then you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. What this is, is nothing other than a, a, a Near Eastern traditional matter for childless couples. They've lived their lives. They've had no children. It's evident that God isn't giving them children. They've amassed their their household and their businesses and their wealth. They're mature people and they're beyond childbirth, childbearing years. And so towards the end of their lives or as their lives mature, they will pick out a beloved servant, a faithful, loyal servant, and they would literally adopt them as their child. And then they would be the ones who would receive their inheritance. And they would be the ones through whom they would pass on any blessing from the head of the house. So Abram comes up with this cultural solution. You know, it's a little bit like this. All right, Lord, you're not coming through for me, so let me help you out. Here's a way that we could solve this problem. You've promised me that I'm going to become a great nation through my offspring. It's obvious to me that we're not going to have children and it just isn't going to happen. And so I've picked out Eliezer of Damascus and it's through him that you will fulfill your promise. And here, God in his grace, number four, gives a personal explanation, a personal explanation to Abram. Wouldn't you love that when you're confused? Let me pour myself a cup of coffee. God, I'm going to sit right over here on this side of the table. I'm going to pull back the chair. You sit down on that side of the table and please give me a personal explanation for everything that's going on that I don't understand. What a privilege for the Lord to speak directly to Abram and be able to explain to him what's going to happen. Look what he says. Verse 4, a personal explanation. And then the word of the Lord came to him. By the way, you might underline that phrase in your Bible. The word of the Lord came to him. Listen, especially young people, but oldsters as well. You can only know the will of God through the word of God. Do you know that? You can only know the will of God through the word of God. And all that that it possesses for us. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. There it is. Abram, you don't have to be afraid. Abram, stop worrying about all the miscellaneous loose ends in your life, the things that you cannot control. I will be your shield. I will reward you greatly. And by the way, Abram, stop trying to help me complete my will in your life. My plan is not your plan, and your plan is no good. It will come right from your body. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, I often encounter people who are, are very confused about God's direction in their lives. 
And as I visit with them and talk, it's not that difficult usually to come up with a list of about 10 things going on in their world that are in direct contradiction from the Word of God. They might be all confused over here, but they've got this whole array of things that they're just ignoring about God's Word. Why is my life a mess over here? Why can't I make sense of it over here? Well, let's just start down and let's just get the Word of God straight in your life. And then let's see what God does in making your way plain, in guiding and directing your paths. Abram is counting on his own understanding, isn't he? Abram is not trusting in the Lord with all of his heart. He's not not leaning on his own understandings. And he's confused about the path that God is going to direct him. But God says, it's it's natural that you're confused. It's not going to be a cultural solution. He gives personal explanation, and then he gets him up out of his tent, moves him outside, and number five, you'll see in verse five, he gives him a visual illustration. A visual illustration. Look at verse five. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The word of God is clear. We often just don't pay attention to it. And Abram is hearing God. Again, I don't know how this looked or how this worked. We know the end of the story from the beginning, don't we? We have it written in the history book here. Think about the moment of this happening in Abram's life. Think about the, the conflict of emotion going on in him, even to the point of having anxiety. How's it going to happen? How does all this fit together? And then God says, Abram, get up. Get up. Abram gets up, goes out. God says, Abram, look up. Abram, if you can, count the stars, buddy. Well, God, you know I can't count the stars. That's right, Abram, and so shall your offspring be. More than you can count coming from your own body. Abram, go back to bed and relax. Get a good night's sleep. Wake up and have a good breakfast and just keep doing what I tell you to do. A visual illustration. But I want you to notice in this great passage, one of the, one of the linchpin verses of the Old Testament, verse 6, after God promises him and gives him this visual illustration and reminds him that he will follow through on what he's already previously promised him on two occasions before chapter 15. He says, And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The very key to his salvation, number six, the key to his salvation happened right there under the stars as Abram believed the word of God by faith. Abram just believed it. Okay, Lord. We're going to see a lapse in faith again in the next chapter. Oh, it's a fight, isn't it? But it's interesting how this phrase is used throughout Scripture and how Abram is pointed to, because what we see here is we see a man whose righteousness, it says, is credited to. That means deposited over. Another word is imputed. It's a banker's term. And the idea is, I didn't have anything in my account and I needed something in my account, and that which was in another account was credited over to my account. It was imputed. It was transferred over. It was received into my account and credited to my name. I didn't earn it. I didn't have it. It came out of nowhere by no working of my own. When I went to check my checking account, all this money had been credited over to my account. The good news is it gets to stay there. 
And in Abram, we have the testimony of the, of the salvation of the pre-cross, pre-resurrection, pre-Christ saints. I want to take a minute and do just a minute of Bible study here. Can we do that? Because that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? How do Old Testament saints get saved? Well, in this verse, we recognize that their justification, their redemption, their righteousness comes the same way a New Testament saints does, by faith in God alone, not by any works of their own. I want you to notice how Paul uses this in his writing. Let's turn to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 4. Will you please? Romans chapter 4. Let's do a little Bible study here for just a minute. We'll try not to bog down because this gets a little bit technical. And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, writing to a Jewish audience, writing in the terms of a lawyer, writing in technical, theological, almost legal argument type terms, in chapter 4 is, and you should take time to read chapter 4 this week sometime, Romans chapter 4 in its entirety is using Abram as an illustration of how our justification is, that is our forgiveness of sin in Christ, how our justification is not of works in any way, but it is all of faith. It is a gift given to us. That when Abram stood under the stars and believed God, God gave him a righteous standing from that moment on. The idea was that by his faith, he was declared righteous. In the same way that you came to the cross one day and by faith received the finished work of Christ as done for you and believed the message, God imputed, God credited, God deposited into your account the righteousness of Christ for your faith in receiving this message. Chapter 4, he uses Abraham because, it's a Jewish audience, who is the most holy of the holy men? Who is the most righteous of the patriarchs? In the Jewish mind, none is higher than Father Abraham. And Paul's argument is simply this, that if anybody could get to heaven by keeping the law, if anybody could get to heaven by good works, it would have to be, and the audience would know, Abram. Abraham, of course. And Paul, in all of Romans chapter 4, is simply arguing that not even Abraham could get into heaven on his good works. Okay? Let's read a couple verses here, and then you'll see the quote directly from Genesis 15, 6 that Paul makes. Chapter 4, let's pick it up at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works that is to be declared righteous by a holy God, by works that I can do on my own, he had something to boast about. Okay, so if Abraham could have been a holy enough man on his own strength, he would be able to boast, I got my righteousness because I just am so good. But not before God he couldn't boast. What does the scripture say? Here it is, the quote from 15.6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You wouldn't work all week, would you, for your boss? Go into the office to pick up your paycheck and just say, Drew, you've worked hard this week, buddy. Here's a gift. And you're pretty excited about that. You open it up and you find it's your paycheck. It's your negotiated deal pay. Wait a minute, isn't it? No, no, it's a gift. You say what? No, I worked for it, man. That's not a gift. You owe that to me because I worked. 
I did something to make this transaction happen. Paul is arguing that Abraham did not do any works to get this transaction to take place, nor have we, nor has anybody who's been saved. Verse 4 again, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see that? Saved by faith alone. Paul uses the same argument in Galatians chapter 3. Take a look there. First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 3, and look at verse 6. The Galatians were a group of people who had begun to follow Christ, and in the church at Galatia, they were Hebrew Christians as well, and they had begun to follow after Christ under the teaching of Paul and the church planting effort that had gone on, and then they had turned away from believing that salvation was in Christ alone, by faith alone, and had gone back to trying to do good works to merit the pleasure of God's smile upon them. They said, well, we got to keep the law. You see, they had been brought up under the law, doing sacrifices and doing this and doing that so that somehow God would be pleased with them. And Paul is arguing to them, don't be deceived. Don't go back to works. It's all by faith alone in Christ. Let's pick up with verse 1 here. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You see, you can't by human effort please God enough to become righteous so that you're qualified for heaven. By human effort, verse 4, Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Just like Abraham, you believe what you heard. And that triggers in Paul's mind as he's writing when he writes, you believed what you heard, that's Abram. Verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, he's telling his audience, Not even Abraham believed in his good works enough to get into heaven. He just believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. A direct quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I think it's interesting on our way back to finish out in Genesis to stop as you turn left, right in John's gospel, chapter 8. Turn to John's gospel, chapter 8. Take a look here once. John, chapter 8. And there's an interesting point made here by Jesus himself in his earthly ministry and teaching, when he is defending the fact that he is God and that he knows God, he's seen God, and of course the Pharisees are always on him about that, looking for an excuse to to slam him and kill him. Chapter 8 of John, verse 54. Look at verse 54. Jesus replied, If I glorify my... 
If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. And Jesus is saying, I did this through God. I'm a genuine, authentic representation here. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar. You want me to say I don't really know him personally and and of him and of the same essence, but I do. Otherwise, I'd be a liar. But I know him and keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. I'm not sure I understand everything about that verse, but I think I understand it enough to know this. That what Jesus is saying is that when God said that Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness, he believed what? He believed that God had promised that through a son that would come from his loins, there would be a son born to him and that through him, Abram and the whole world would be blessed. Ultimately, that son was Jesus. Isaac is the son of blessing as well, but that Abram will experience. But ultimately, it says that somehow Abram saw clear to Jesus as the promised son of blessing. And he had faith to believe that it was through that that the righteousness of God is accrued. There it is. Receiving by faith the message that God gave. Well, that's kind of an interesting thought there. And as we go back to Genesis and finish up this morning, let's make some application. What an interesting few verses this is in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. We have this unusual conversation. Abram's natural confusion leading to him making some suggestion with a cultural solution. God's personal explanation to him, giving him the visual illustration of the stars, and in Abram's belief, the very key to God's salvation for him, credited to his account for righteousness. The time is gone. Let's make some application, shall we, as we prepare to depart for the afternoon. I think there's some very obvious lessons here for us today, spiritual lessons. One is uh, very practical, I think, and it's what we talked about in point one. Application number one is this. I think that there will be times and seasons in the life of all... Excuse me. There will be times and seasons in life of spiritual discouragement. All people will experience times and seasons in your life of spiritual discouragement. That's how the passage started out. Abram is, has to be told by God, don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. I'll be your supply. Don't be discouraged. And I think we need to recognize that there are seasons of desert in our lives. It's not all about spiritual high. The joy of the Lord is not always bubbling over in us. And in those times, you need to continue to be faithful. Continue to rely upon the promises of God. Continue to rely upon the word of God through whom we discern the will of God, through which we discern the will of God. There will be times and seasons in life of spiritual discouragement. We need to be aware of that and deal with it. Number two, I think like Abram, we need to, number two, guard against the strong fleshly impulse to make my plans God's plan. 
We need to guard against the strong fleshly impulse to make God, my plan, God's plan. Did I say that right? I believe something is God's will in my life. I believe that God wants to accomplish a purpose. But all of the circumstances of my life are screaming at me that it's not going to work out the way you believe God said it would work out. So therefore, you better come up with another plan. Lord, let me make a suggestion that we could pull this thing off like this. And the Lord says, no, I promised, and this is how it's going to happen, if you could figure it out, it wouldn't be faith. Just keep believing and watch me accomplish my purpose through you. Janet and I had a great privilege a few months ago. I may have used this for an illustration once already, but the complete story is really interesting, and you ladies would especially enjoy it. Find some time to sit down with Janet. She'll be glad to tell you the whole story. And years ago, in the mid-80s, um, 84 to 88, when I was first a youth pastor, there was a young lady in our youth group. She had a twin sister, by the way. Sharp young ladies, godly, loved the Lord in their 10th, 11th, and 12th grade years when I was their youth pastor. And just a few months ago, we were invited to the one sister's wedding at age 41. First time married, entering into marriage. Her twin sister, to kind of heap coals of fire on her head, had gotten married right away. Out of, they had both gone to Washington Bible College. She had met a guy. They got married, had children. The other sister, unmarried all of these years. Basically, two decades, 20 years go by. She wanted to be married. She wanted a family. She felt like that was God's plan for her life. She kept just getting another degree, kept teaching, doing this. A sharp young lady, um, good athlete, very smart, ended up with a, a master's degree, teaching at university level. A few months ago, we were one of the few outside of the family guests that were invited in up to Lancaster County to witness at age 41, Joy walking down the aisle to be married to a man there who had just lost his wife three years before of cancer. A fine, godly man, had four kids, a, like a 15-year-old boy, a 13-year-old boy, an 11-year-old boy, and then like a 9-year-old girl, something like that. Four kids, instant husband, instant family. Now let's back up a little bit. So you're 25 years old, and God's will is just not making sense. Come on, Lord, how about if we do it this way? No, Joy, I have a plan. Just keep doing what I'm telling you. Lord, I don't have any peace about this. Just keep walking in the truth. Now you're 30 years old. Lord, I'm really getting tired of how long this is taking. I have unfulfilled desires in my heart. You know it's your plan. It's the way you designed a family. It's the way you designed me as a person before you. Now you're 35 years old. God, I have no idea what you're doing. I'm thinking about bailing out. The fog is so thick, I cannot fly this airplane any longer in a straight line, and I'm not going to look at the instruments. It tells me to just keep being faithful. Now she's 40 years old. She had her 40th birthday before she ever met this guy. And then in a six-month window, she meets this godly widower and God's plan comes together for her life. 
And it was one of the most moving experiences, filled with joy as the families gathered around and affirmed this relationship. And it was so evident that Joy's life on God's trajectory and timeline had come to intersect that, Joy, I am saving you for a special mission. Through you, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring a godly young mother into the lives of four precious children who've been so broken, watching their mother shrivel up and die of cancer. And now their home has been so empty for three years. And now you are their joy in the morning. And she was just so filled with grace and and joy. And you could just see the satisfaction of obedience. How many times I wondered. I wondered how many times she tried to make her plan into God's plan. Doesn't work. How incomplete, how different her life would be if she had not waited upon God. Just do what I tell you. It seems impossible, but I have a plan. Don't short-circuit it. There will be times and seasons in all of our lives of spiritual discouragement. We have to prepare for it. We must guard against the strong fleshly impulse to make our plans God's plan. Number three, genuine faith is difficult. To walk by faith and not by sight is incredibly difficult. When the hood comes down and I've got to just trust the instrument, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can love this person with the love of Christ. I can forgive in the same way Christ has forgiven me. I don't feel like it. Everything in my gut tells me it can't happen, but the Word says do it. Walking by faith is difficult. And number four, finally, application for today. Don't we get from this story that salvation is certainly unattainable by any kind of personal effort? Salvation is unattainable by any kind of personal effort. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it, he imputed, he deposited it on his count for righteousness. Abram, by his faith, is commended. He believed God. I wonder where you are in your life this morning. This message takes on application from a variety of direction. It's possible, isn't it, that you are trying to convince God right now that you've got a better idea. You might even be adopting some of the cultural practices to say, in our culture, we do it this way, God. And God says, well, that's not the way I've designed it for you. Are you willing to walk by faith through that? It could be that um, you're just really discouraged and in the desert. Listen, you can make it. And it is remarkable all that God accomplishes when we're in the desert. He'll lead you out in due time. And it's possible that some are here working very hard to get to heaven in your own effort. You really, 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 really want to go to heaven. And so you're really, really, really being good. Listen, it doesn't cut it. For by grace, we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a free gift. Will you reach out and take it today? Just believe God that Jesus died for your sin.
And ultimately, Chris, is it easy to click up? Let's end with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 again. Can we do that? Here we go. Is it coming? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Here we go. Together, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Do you believe it? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace today, and thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ through faith, believing. Father, thank you for this great example in Abram of a man who, though he had weaknesses, and though he was tempted to capitulate to his own personal agenda, he listened to your word, and he believed it. And in so doing, you honored him. Lord, may your Holy Spirit have the freedom to make application now as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.